Welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. Today we're joined by Sean Ordain, who is the Strategic Planning Manager at Wellington City Council. Sean is an expert in cutting-edge digital twin technology as a specialist in urban planning and city innovation. Sean has an urban planning degree from the University of Auckland and has served on a number of international bodies, including the Open Government Partnership Expert Advisory Panel, Digital Twin Task Force, the World Economic Forum's G20 Smart Cities Advisory Group, and the Global Futures Council. Sean has been recognised with a number of international awards, including as a Harvard Global Tech Innovator in 2020 and a Smart Cities Council Leader, also in 2020. We're thrilled to have Sean here today, sharing his wealth of knowledge and a glimpse into the transformative potential of digital twins, which is shaping the future of city planning. So thanks for sharing, Sean. I'm eager to pick your brains today. Excellent. Yes, lovely to speak with you. Awesome. Um, I was just keen to really start this, um, how you got into planning and ultimately how you got into digital twins. So maybe if you could take us back, how did you get into your career in the first place? I think the common joke was that planning was the only degree I could spell, so I had to do it. <laughs> so, a long time ago, I, um, I originally lived in Auckland and I was working in a factory and realised that that's probably not what I wanted to do with my life. And so... I, as a child, I had been taken to central Auckland um, while my father was at work, or my grandfather, yeah. and um, seen all the people around me and slowly realised that there was actually a system that wasn't completely random. And that's what picked my interest in city planning. And so I went and got a degree in it and have been figuring out what a planner is ever since. Yeah, yeah. And uh, your involvement with digital twins? That's not mm. so, it's what, the last 10 years or so, roughly? Yeah. So... Early on in my planning career, while I was still at university, I realized that I could use computers to help measure things around me and to, more importantly, take some of those really long abstract reports that planners write and turn them into immersive visualizations, into things that actually people could relate to and see in their own lives and that we could make better decisions that way. And mm. ever since I've been figuring out how technologies can be used in practice to do that. Yeah. Have you always had a kind of an affinity for technology as well? Uh, I've always been very curious. Um, I'm one of those people yeah. who picks things up and rattles them and figures out how to take them apart and um, play with them. And so Interesting, naturally yeah. I quite like technologies. Um, I tend to be terribly suspicious of them until I figure out how they work. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I've been doing a lot of research over the last couple of weeks and I've kind of lived through your LinkedIn post for quite a long time. Um, but uh, what sort of stages would you say digital twins are at? Cause they, I think they established what in 2002, roughly around that time. How yeah. far along are you in your journey? Cause you've made the first one for New Zealand. Is that right? One of them, um, digital twins yeah. have, have evolved. They're not really invented. And so yeah. slowly technologies like CAD and GIS and uh, some of those other representative technologies have combined with things like Internet of Things and yeah. twins, digital twins have emerged from them. So uh, particularly earlier uh, digital twins, often their creators didn't realize they're creating digital twins. I certainly didn't realize that's what we were working on to begin with. It wasn't until somebody from overseas said, one day we'll have these things called digital twins. Yeah. Um, and then we realize, oh, you mean one of these? Yes, one of those. Um, the other thing is the future tends to be around us, but 
in little fragments that are quite hard to see. So, you know, the classic example is Nintendo as a company was founded in the reign of Queen Victoria. Or uh, the first fax, well, the fax patent was registered at the same time as the first battle of the New Zealand wars. So the people at the time wouldn't have known what a fax machine was, but it did exist in the world. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So you've made one of the first few for New Zealand and you're, you've got a model for Wellington. Is that kind of, there's not one for Auckland that you're working on, it's solely Wellington, right? Yes, so I serve the people of Wellington. So yeah. um, whilst I help yeah. the other cities in their endeavours, my main job is looking after uh, the people I yeah. serve. So what I was really curious to understand from you is where do you start with building that? So this is where the strategic part of my job comes in. So strategy, uh, strategies is about purposes and permanence. It's those constant problems that you always seem to come back to. They just appear in different forms. And so what you end up with is these, are these very long running purposes that drive a city forward. And for Wellington, it's resilience. It's dealing with biodiversity and climate change issues. It's uh, ultimately also tied up with the problems which bedevil local government across New Zealand and all around the Western world of how do we deliver the services that keep citizens' quality of life high and ultimately alive, whilst at the same time doing so in such a constrained fiscal environment. And so mm. that's where we were starting to use those digital tools was because we realised that we needed to know more to do more. Um, and that the first question you always need to ask yourself when you're working with these systems as a public servant is what are you trying to optimise? And what we've found through being able to, uh, to talk to people using virtual reality, to, uh, to using large data sets to analyse the effects of earthquakes, to helping underpin things like the reintroduction of kiwi and different bird species to Wellington, is actually we didn't necessarily know enough to have the right questions to start with. And so that's what a lot of this work is doing, is figuring out how do we ask better questions. Yeah, so it's pulling that data from different data sets like Civil 3D, Arc, GIS. Can yeah. it, is there a, it's not just Arc, GIS, it's, it could be anything no. and everything? Yeah, so digital twins, as you move up in physical scale, they move from being model-like to market-like. So a digital twin of a single building or a single component looks like a model that's been attached to a series of sensors or whatever it is that's delivering yeah. information. When you get up to the scale of a city, you have interacting organizations and interacting uh, silos of data. And so we use things like, uh, we use game engines to provide the interactivity uh, and to get around some of the physics problems and the real-time projection problems. We use GIS because of its power uh, of precision geographic accuracy. Uh, we use uh, sensors because of their ability to deliver real-time data. We use business process data because it's rich and tells us what people are actually doing. Um, mm. But these flow through a whole bunch of different systems, um, each one of them relatively independent for a business purpose. But the twin capabilities sit across those silos, joining them together, essentially, so that we can start right. to understand how services fit together um, and how the city works. So Interesting. A, yeah. a good example is, 
um, say, in the, in the health sphere. So we've done work with the, um, with the hospital to understand how things like ambulance pickups and reports of broken infrastructure uh, co-locate. And so we can understand what the effect of different types of investments in the city's environments have on the health outcomes. Uh, it's also a good example because one of the problems with cities is they're all muddled together and the jurisdictions are all muddled together. So I'm not really responsible for health outcomes. But at the same time, I've got budgets to repair things in our organisation and the hospital doesn't. So if we repair things, then people don't need repairing. So it becomes an efficiency uh, thing so that the right people yes. can take the right action. Yeah, yeah, it's not really something you would think about, isn't it, that your role as a planner could have a positive impact on health outcomes for people as well. It's just a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, is there any other, because uh, I noticed that there were some all different sorts of use cases, obviously, diff optioneering for different planning scenarios is an obvious one, but there looks like you've done some other experiments, what I think would be a way to describe it, where you were, I think I found an article where you had, you were capturing uh, bird calls, was that right? Yes. So, Native species? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Is there other, we any sort of weird and wonderful experiments that you've done? Oh, yes. Some of the, there have been some distinctly odd ones. Um, back when we were working with um, NEC um, in, a, in a partnership, we tried to isolate the smell of hydrocarbons so that we could right. determine what graffiti had been done with. Uh, because if you know what the if you know the, thing, the paint or the ink that's been used, you can use the right solvent. Um, so you can clean it up more quickly um, and with less risk to the people doing the cleaning up. I mean, the problem with that was we are the windiest city in the entire world. So uh, the hydrocarbons would just blow away unless you're in a stairwell or inside. Um, <laughs> so it's a good, good example of the right case for the right thing. Or um, the breaking glass was another one we did um, where we... Yeah. Listen to the sounds of breaking glass so it can be measured and cleaned up uh, to stop it getting into kids' feet. Um, another um, another strange one we did was we, we tried for a little while to understand um, screaming. Um, but it turns out that that one is very culturally specific. And so in a place like Japan, uh, where the research had originally come from, people don't scream except in distress. Whereas... Uh, if you go down to Cuba Street on a Friday night, people are yahooing about all sorts of things, and they're certainly not in distress. Um, so. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you never would have thought you could have used it. So those sensors that you guys have implemented yourselves, whether it be well, see something so that would be able ones, to sense chemicals? Yeah, so all of those experiments have ended now, um, but there are still sensors for things like um, shaking and buildings. Um, we're just rolling up very large sensor uh, systems for measuring uh, active transport. So my colleague, uh, Julia, is leading all of those. And so they'll give us better accounts of pedestrians and cyclists and people using streets. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges with city planning is you, have, you often have good data for one thing, but not for another. And so it can be quite hard to get a complete picture of how an environment works. Yeah, well, I would imagine that's why collaboration is quite key as well, um, which is going to lead into my other question. Do you, um, who interfaces with the model? Is it open to different so, corporations and local government? Yeah, so, for example, 
we have three-dimensional models of every building in Wellington, and they're all available through the Open Data Portal. Yeah. We've got a bit of work to do before we can open source some of the um, some of the game engine stuff, but we're working towards it. Um, and there are a lot of the constituent data feeds uh, available to the public, either through our Open Data Portal or through data.gov.nz. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of an awkward one because, whilst particularly while we're experimenting with data um, feeds, people get very annoyed if you change their data schemas on them, I find. Uh, so we tend to let them stabilise before we publish them. All right, I'm with you. Okay. Um, what are some of the major challenges that you faced with digital um, twins? So we were we were lucky in that we because we didn't set out to build digital twins, we didn't necessarily have the expectations that come with somebody saying they're going to build a digital twin. Yeah. Um, I think the big challenge has been slowly realising that this is very much the capability of an organisation, and it's much more about how people understand data to make decisions, to communicate, and to work across different parts of an organisation than necessarily a computer programme. Because what you're really doing is taking bits of people's time and bits of computer programme and putting them together uh, to make a, a sort of a systemic whole. Some of the other challenges have been developing the privacy infrastructure needed to do it. Um, and particularly understanding how that evolves through time. Uh, one of the really big challenges with particularly city twins, but also state and government, other forms of government twins, is, is working at how you actually govern them. Uh, because at a certain point, data starts to become like money, and it needs to be uh, governed with the same rigour as the financial system. And that's quite a, quite a big thing for leaders to get their heads around, I find. Yeah, interesting. Um, and the type, there's different types of digital twins, for different use cases, obviously. What type is yours? So we tend towards system and market twins. So particularly right. for, say, the underground digital twin, which is the largest and most complex of our projects at the moment. Yeah. So what that is, is measuring everything beneath the ground in the city and federating that across all of the utilities and using that to consent works within the streets and in the underground spaces of the city. And so what that looks like is a whole series of interacting di digital artifacts that are constantly being exchanged between these organisations so that the consents can be given, the sites can be monitored, all those things. And uh, the underground of what's beneath your feet in the city is incredibly complex and often much more unknown than people realise. Mm. And where are you pulling that from, though? So we have maps and GIS data sets of where things should be. But as right. we dig okay. the streets, we find out there's a difference between where things should be and where they are. And so yeah. that has meant evolve working with people like Reveal, which is the local Wellington company, to scan what is beneath the street and start attributing. Uh, what belongs where. Uh, so, for you know, basically moving the lines to the right place. It's also yeah. been about finding things that you didn't know were there. So, old infrastructure, so things like tram tracks yeah. just buried. Um, no. Or sometimes you find voids, so where there's no ground. Um, 
those need to be fixed before something falls into them. Uh, and there's the records of the utilities themselves. And so that's, that's the real challenge and the difference between traditional data projects and the sort of digital twin way of doing things is you have to create those return loops so that yeah. data is cycling backwards and forwards rather than just going in one direction, which is a, that's the big challenge. Yeah. So when you're looking at different scenarios, for example, if you want to test out options for a certain type of development or whatever it is, um, is that when you do that within the model, do you get real time information back to say, this is some of the implications of doing it this way and give you maybe, I guess, being able to make more robust decisions based on that information as well. Is it, is it, is that quick in real time that it can respond with exactly as you're changing it, if that makes sense? So if we, are, um, if we're looking to say test, uh, planning proposals for new rules, then yeah. that can be done nearly in real time. In practice, it takes a little bit, a little bit longer to operate. Um, and that can tell us, for example, if I raise height limits by this and create a rule that does that, how much floor space would be created under different configurations. Um, one of the most useful things that that type of parametric modeling does is it tells us how many of a case exists. So quite often policy, you get presented a problem and say, we need a policy on this, but often that thing is singular and there is actually one or two of them in the city. And so you don't need a policy for that. You just need to make a decision on that one. So yeah, um, with you. it helps us understand where strategic effort should be put. Yeah. Okay. So is it, is it Wellington City that are one of the only councils using digital twins for their own so, city? I don't, I don't many, know many others. We're definitely the eldest child. Um, <laughs> um, and Canterbury Regional Council are doing some great things to, to do some okay. work. Uh, Marlborough, which is a unitary authority, is doing uh, quite a cool pilot um, in the Marlborough Sounds. And, uh, yeah, we, and Hamilton has done some, some good work, particularly on the GIS end of things. So there are councils across okay. that are adapting it to their own particular purposes. But um, one of the big challenges uh, is going to be how do we aggregate this across the country so that you don't end up with the railway gauge problem of not being able to run trains between cities because you've got different gauges. The same thing happens with different data schemas and different specifications. D different specifications in the models are slightly different? That they're off? They're not, in, they're not aligned? Is the so way that, put it? that can happen with um, if you're using different geographic projections. Um, so a common one is if you if you use the wrong projection, you know Wellington's buildings appear off the Chatham Islands. Um, so that can be a problem, but more more likely is you get schema encoding problems where, for example, say it's a say you've got a, a building data set and you've coded all the roofs by color. Um, G might mean green in my data set, but grey in your data set. Um, okay, I'm with you. They're very simple issues, but the sorts of things that bedevil people when they try to use it in practice. Yeah, okay. So you've got multiple models for Wellington. So one's a city-wide one, and the other one is more so, small scale. Maybe you could describe. So we've got 
multiple models through time. So every few years we build a new model. So that's how we see change in the city. Um, okay. Yeah. And we also have different types of models. So for example, for something like Takina, uh, the new convention center, we'll use BIM-based model modeling. Um, whereas for buildings, say, up in Karori, they'll largely be LiDAR scanned. So they will only have the outsides of those, and then we'll interpolate the number of floors. Okay. Yeah. And do you, what is it run on? Is it is its own application? Is it ArcGIS? I, I was trying to figure out what it actually runs on. Is it its own? So it depends on what it's going to, it, it depends on how you want to see the print. So for example, if we're interested okay. in more seeing graphs, we'll run, we'll run it through Power BI. If we want to, to actually show somebody, so like I'm just about to go out and see a, uh, a business improvement district for their annual meeting. So I'm going to use a game engine to talk to them because I can zoom around and do basic things in it. Uh, I've got to speak to the councillors uh, a little bit later in the month. I'll be using G ArcGIS for that because uh, I'll need to be able to do some analytics on the spot. So it depends okay. on, that's why we tend to talk about it more as a capability than necessarily a platform. Right, okay, that's where I'm getting lost, I think. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, I was keen to touch on how AI and machine learning touches in this um, from your experience. Is uh, What have you experienced with it as far as so, AI and also plugs into internet of things as well? So machine learning, I, I've always viewed as more of a family of technologies rather than a single thing. Yeah. Um, because uh, the, the way we use machine learning is a little bit different to the way people do with, say, ChatGPT. Um, so I don't tend to be using language models. What I tend to be yeah. using are audio models, so models that analyze sound, or I'm looking for patterns. So for example, we'll, we'll tell the model to map tree canopies or map um, swimming pools. That's, to be honest, I could do that by hand in Wellington, there's not many of them. Um, but the, um, we tend to look more at the sort of sound and vision end of things than necessarily the text-based stuff. And that, Largely a reflection of the type of work we do, um, but it's also uh, got to do with the the way we learn. So we, we don't really know enough about the text base machine learning, in my view, to, to really employ it in our work yet. We're still in the play with it stage. One technology which uh, Nadia, a colleague of mine, is much more expert in than I am, is um, the uh, a, a technology called rules as code, which is where you encode legislation or regulation into machine executable form so that you can uh, essentially use that to begin to automate services. And so whilst I was originally interested in it for its automated automation ability to help with things like resource consents, we're also seeing value in its ability to uh, help with the auditability of processes because it allows you to work out whether people have received entitlements that they should have, et cetera. Uh, and so the ACC is quite a good case study of how that can work in practice. I'm not sure, what do you mean by ACC? What was the example there? So the Accident Compensation Corporation uh, have quite a good case study on how rules as code can be used to make sure that the entitlements people are due under the law can be audited Right. Make sure they're getting the right thing. 
And so what it can basically do is you can work backwards through the entitlements because the machine can interact with them to understand, okay, so based on what we know, what should the person have got? Okay, now we can compare that with what they did get through the casework. Yeah. Transparency, uh, that transparency ability, I think, is where that particular branch of technology will really shine in the future. Yeah, okay. Um, So how many iterations are you in to your city model now? We tend to think of them as generations. So multiple individuals in any given generation, but we're we're about third or fourth. Okay, Um, yeah. Where do you where do you ultimately see the technology going? Because it's still sorry, you go. So ultimately, what we are aiming to get towards is the open sourcing of not just the base data, but also the interactive technologies that sit on top of them, so that we can make much more transparent decisions. And so some of the other projects we've. Cool. So yeah, we just pick up where we just left off. I asked you a question, obviously, about um, future trends. Where does this ultimately go, Sean? So if we go back to that original idea of strategy about understanding purposes, what we're aiming to do is to figure out how local democracy can work into the future and how do we make it much more transparent, participative, and ultimately assure a democratic mandate for another uh, generation at a systemic level. What that means in practice is projects like Trapdem, which a colleague of mine, Kylie, is looking after and leading. Uh, what that project is doing is recording democratic decisions and how they relate to each other so that you can see who made what decision when um, publicly. I know that sounds incredibly simple, but it's a lot harder than people realise to actually yeah. follow um, representative democracy. The we've been awarded the uh, uh, global mayors challenge from Bloomberg Philanthropies, and so uh, Julia, I mentioned before, is leading that project, and that's figuring out how we work with communities to adapt to climate change. And what all these things are recognizing is that in this in the future we're in now. Uh, we need a way of making decisions over long periods of time in a sustained way. And that's ultimately what this work is trying to do. It's it's taking our understanding of the city into a place where we can make decisions continuously, we can work with communities continuously to adapt to the world we're coming into. Right, okay. Um, How are you factoring in human behaviour into the model? Because that I found quite interesting. So um, there's a couple of different ways. So one of them is by finding better ways to understand how people are moving around um, another city. And so understanding sort of the behavioral science behind it. As part of the um, Global Mayors Challenge, uh, Julia's team is doing quite a bit of work on how you use these technologies in practice with communities. So previously I've done work with different communities understanding how they use technologies like VR. But those were very much experiments to see that the technology could be used. Um, what Julia is working out is how does it get 
best get used to sustain that decision making. And so some of the things we, I learned from an earlier generation was things like when we were using virtual reality, uh, one of the challenges was we had to figure out how to make it a collective experience rather than a deeply individual one, because we make decisions collectively from a local government. And so that meant making sure that, you know, you had big screens, the person in the VR was acting as a guide, they were still able to engage in conversation with the group so they could sort of come to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, we found that using uh, these large models with the children was very different from adults. So if you put a child into a VR model of the city, they will normally go somewhere they're not allowed to go. They'll go to the top of a skyscraper, they'll go to an island, uh, swing off a radio mast, something, something fun. An adult, however, will immediately go home uh, and then they will normally go to work. It's slightly dispiriting that we've spent all this time figuring out how to make this wonderful thing and then they just use it for the thing they do every day. But it's a form of orientation. And that, that most common aspect of somebody's life, their journey to work, is how they, how they orient themselves. Whereas with children, they become, they're really curious and they, they want to get out of home. They want to figure out um, something they've never been to before. And so it makes the use of the technologies uh, completely different. There's one you start as a familiar familiarization task, the other you start as an adventure. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I can imagine from, um, I guess, stakeholders and getting public support for whatever it may be, having that interaction, if you can get in virtual reality and see what it is for itself and look around, that must be quite powerful, I think, being able to help get some... Like, yeah. It was extremely useful making decisions after the Kaikoura earthquake and when we were doing our first to zero strategy to meet challenges of climate change. What it meant was you know, you could raise sea levels and stand in, in the raised sea level and understand what it meant. But it meant you could then ask other questions like, okay, I see the water's up here. What has it done to the drains? What does it mean for stuff I can't see? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I mean about asking better questions. Um, because the the long-term threat from things like sea level rise isn't, isn't really from people drowning. It's more from it making things like sanitation systems stop working. Yeah. yeah, yeah. you don't think about it, but yeah, it's, that's why it's good to test that stuff out. I see. Um, if you had any advice, Sean, for someone that was perhaps uh, maybe a, a fledgling planner that is interested in the type of work you do, where would be a really good place for them to start building skills in this arena? Um, so the first thing is to realise that you don't have to do everything. You just have to do something. Um, so pick a purpose, then there's an unparalleled amount of open data available, um, particularly uh, LiDAR data. And there are tutorials and resources online that can help, that can help you practice with uh, open source tools, particularly yep. things like SketchUp. And then once you understand the basic geometries, then you can start to move into more complex um, tasks. That's how I started. Um, I was taught a little bit of GIS, um, but most of it was stuff I just had to experiment with. Really? Um, and it, it does get very frustrating. But happily, because of cloud computing, we don't have the same barriers we did before. 
when I started, if you built more than about two city blocks, the computer started to smoke. Um, whereas now we can do entire entire countries. Yeah, yeah. ArcGIS. Okay. Um, anything else that you used or followed? Um, yes, uh, SketchUp. Uh, one of the the new things that people would probably, if I was learning today, that I would start with would be uh, Google Earth have just open sourced a whole lot of their data, so you okay. can extract it for the first time. And there's a program called Cesium um, that's uh, quite a common three-dimensional engine. I would be figuring out how to get Google Earth into Cesium as tiles and also or using uh, skipping straight to game engines. Okay. And because uh, once you've got that 3D world, then you can start just experimenting. Yeah. So well, building up the background is a hard part and the dispersing bit. <laughs> um, any game engine? Anything that you use? Um, uh, I've got a soft spot for Unity. Unity, okay. Yeah, so this doesn't have to be at the level of coding level to be able to get yeah. started in this. No, I can I can do a bit of Python coding myself, but okay. like I say, I'm a, I'm a planner first. Um, there are hard limits on my competence um, when it comes to uh, coding. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and just finally as well, um, how did you get involved with the World Economic Forum? Because you said, um, I asked you the question, obviously, how did, you, how did you get involved with it? And you said, oh, I created these opportunities for myself. So is this just self-taught? You put yourself in the right places? How did you come to be involved doing that type of work? Because it's super interesting. Um, so I was lucky. I was one of the first innovation officers in New Zealand for a local authority. Yeah. And um, that was done because the organisation at the time had the foresight to set up an innovation function. But it was also partially that exploring I was doing in my spare time that became actually quite valuable. The way the economic forum worked was there are not that many people in the sort of city space that are interested in this. Um, it, it was very niche for a very long time. And particularly the work uh, we'd done on privacy and the practical experiments on we'd done on privacy were of interest to the forum. And so that's where that came from. Yeah. Okay. Was it as just simple as I, I applied for it or I got an invitation somewhere. Well, I got an invitation. I got an invitation. Yeah. So, yeah, you've been involved with a few good things, and uh, yeah, you've earned your stripes. Okay, interesting. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Short, maybe even a, a learning or anything that you've, I guess, throughout your whole involvement in this very niche and interesting space. Is there any bigger learning or success story that would be good to share? Um, I think the. The big thing has been to understand that curiosity is actually quite valuable. Um, it's not an annoying thing and that it's something you have to make time for because it's through that curiosity that eventually you can end up with that special combination of factors that means that you're a little bit different to everybody else. Mm. It's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. It's good to be different. Um, well, that's probably about it, Sean. So thank you ever so much for getting involved today. Where can people find you? Um, well, I, I'm normally on something like LinkedIn. I'm terrified of Twitter, so you probably won't find me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, you know, LinkedIn is generally the best place to find me. 
Um, LinkedIn. It might take a while to get an answer before March, though. Um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we're in the city budget, so. Understandable. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I've definitely learned a lot through your LinkedIn post, so I would encourage anyone listening to give Sean a follow and keep up to date with what he's doing, because it's all very interesting. Um, and yeah, thanks for getting involved today, Sean. It's been great to chat with you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs>